Good morning, everyone. Good to see you again, see everyone today. Full house, thank you for coming. When you think of an earthly kingdom, what comes to mind? I think of kingdoms like uh, Rome, right? Giant, powerful Rome. One thing that uh, always distinguished a kingdom and was its leadership. Whoever led the kingdom often determined and, and, and showed whether or not the kingdom was going up or going down. Often bad leaders led to kingdoms of the world falling and evil kings sometimes led to conquering a great, uh, great number of people that then later regrouped and rebelled against them. Uh, kings and kingdoms in earth have risen and fallen over time. Um, but today we're going to look and talk about the kingdom of God and how it is so much different from any kingdom this earth has ever had. We're going to see what it means to know the kingdom of God and be a part of the kingdom of God. And we're going to see that Jesus begins to talk about this kingdom in, in somewhat of a dramatic shift uh, from where he was in Luke 17. He, he brings up the return of Christ and the kingdom of God. A good definition for the kingdom of God would be this. A kingdom is a particular rule or dominion led by a king or a royal figure. It, is usually, it, usually has a, it usually has physical boundaries. All of those are within the borders of the kingdom, and it's subject to that ruler or that king. So when we see the phrase kingdom of God, we might be tempted to fall into that same mentality, that same thought. And as we go along in the scripture, in the passage today, we're going to see that this is very much how the Pharisees thought. They were thinking boundaries, they were thinking location, they were thinking some spectacle of coronation of a new king, and that everything would be laid out beautifully on the earth. But we're going to see that the kingdom of God, at least in the initial, does not have that look, it does not have that appearance, and Jesus speaks in, in terms and in phrases that just are totally opposite to the way that the Pharisees would have thought. The kingdom of God does have a king, and that is God. The subjects and the dominion of the king are his people. And the emphasis, especially initially in the kingdom, is more who he reigns over and the people that are in his rule, not as much the location of where the kingdom is. There's actually two references to the kingdom of God in Scripture are two different types of kingdoms of God that are referred to in the Bible. And I, I kind of want to go over these and explain it a little bit for you. There's the kingdom of God that includes all of creation, and that would be also called the universal kingdom of God. That is, uh, His sovereign rule over all of creation. In a sense, you could say that the kingdom of God is all that you see. <laughs> it's God's Kingdom, everything, the creation. He rules over it, and he is sovereign over everything. When a bird falls from the sky, he's sovereign over that bird falling from the sky. Everything, he's in control, and he's king of that. 
But there's also a kingdom of God that's mentioned in Luke and in several places throughout the gospel that talks more about the kingdom of God under the rule and reign of Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Also called the kingdom of God over the redeemed. Now, as we go through this, you're going to see that Jesus is talking about this kingdom, this second kingdom, his kingdom. And as we go along, we're going to see that these two kingdoms merge. As time goes along, by the end of the time, the end of the history of time, those two kingdoms become one. I'll kind of show you an illustration to kind of explain that. I kind of want to lay some of this groundwork on the kingdom in order for us to deal with the passage, because you've got to understand. He says some things that seem to contradict. Things like, you're not going to see signs. And then later on in the passage, you're going to see a sign. <laughs> Wait, you're not going to see a sign, but you're going to see a sign. <laughs> Is that contradictory? No, it depends on time, and it depends on your understanding of the kingdom. So you have to have this big picture. One is the overall kingdom of God, like I said, that's associated with creation. This is the kingdom of God that he rules over as king. He allows rulers of the world. And a matter of fact, he allows Satan to presently rule over many people in his creation. He's still God over Satan, but Satan is called in in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world. So there is a sense where The ruler, one of the rulers, is an evil ruler on the world under the big universal kingdom of God. But then there's that second kingdom, like I say, like you see, the kingdom of God that's under the rule and reign of Christ. That's the kingdom of God and Christ. This is the kingdom that God rules over through his redeemed people, the Savior, Jesus. It is the kingdom that Jesus is presently ruling over. This second kingdom is a subset of the first kingdom within the bigger created order. As time goes along, like I said, more and more of the second kingdom of Christ will become incorporating and taking over the whole kingdom of God. Right now, many are ruled by Satan. But as time goes along and when they die, they come under the judgment of who? Christ the king. So even those that die then become under him. He's the ruler of them and the judge of him. So I guess you could kind of picture it like this picture. The overall kingdom of God is that bigger picture, the bigger circle. And then you have the kingdom of God and Christ. In Christ is the smaller one. But the way that it works is as time goes along, watch what happens. The kingdom of Christ takes over. The kingdom of God grows. It's growing because more people are being born, right? More things are happening. More things are going. It's growing. But the kingdom of Christ takes over. And as time goes along, it becomes the kingdom of God when he takes ownership of everything. So you've got these two little pictures and how this all fits together and how this works together. You've got to kind of see this in the back of your mind as we're going through this passage. That he's talking about that kingdom of Christ and how that kingdom of Christ is going to grow and grow and grow and grow. And then one day, it's going to be over everything. And before it takes over everything, what's going to happen? There's going to be a gigantic judgment. We'll talk about that more next week. Okay? So let's look and follow along in our passage. 
just let's look at a couple of passages, though, as we go through uh, uh, Luke. And this kingdom of God, which is in Christ, he's talking about in Christ, his kingdom, has been mentioned all the way through Luke. Look back at Luke chapter 1, verse 33. Even when Jesus is being introduced um, to his mother, we have here in Luke 1, 33... And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Okay, so it's talking about from the kingdom when he comes, Jesus is in the is going to be in the belly of Mary in just a little bit. And what's going to happen is he's going to come, and eventually his kingdom will have no end. He'll take over everything. He will be the king of kings over everything. But it sees from the very beginning all the way to the very end. Okay? Then in Luke 4, 43, But Jesus said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. His purpose was to preach this kingdom. And throughout his ministry, that's what he did. He preached about this kingdom, this invisible kingdom at the time. Can't see it. But he was the king. He was there and he was preaching this kingdom. And it goes through Luke several times. It's mentioned close to 30 times the kingdom of God is mentioned. In Luke 6, 20. And turning his gaze towards his disciples, he began to say to them, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You're a part of that kingdom of God. And then he goes on in 8, 10. And he said to you, he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries... Of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now, just a just a side note here. Mystery implies what? Something hidden, but it's being revealed, right? And notice that not everybody's getting it revealed to them. Some get this mystery explained to them, but not everybody gets this mystery. And it's very interesting that what we're going to deal with is two different groups today the pharisees and the disciples in luke 17 right the pharisees what it's hidden from them but the disciples they get it and he gets more revelation of this kingdom so everybody needs to understand that this is kind of the set backdrop this invisible mysterious kingdom that was hidden but now is revealed luke 9 and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of god and to perform healings. So the disciples talked about the kingdom of God. In Acts, when we get into that, they're going to do the same thing. They're going to proclaim the kingdom. We're talking about the kingdom too. Did you know that when we do evangelism, that's what we do? We proclaim the kingdom. And what is that kingdom? That Christ is our king. That we are a part of a kingdom. Did you know that? We're a part of a kingdom. And I'm not talking about the United States of America. We're we're part of a bigger kingdom. And we have a king that is the king over all. And one day he will rule and reign as king of kings and lord of lords. He'll be ever, over everything. We are a part of that kingdom, all who believe. And we proclaim that. Luke 10, 9. And heal those in it who are sick and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near you. Wait a second. When we think of a kingdom, if we think of borders... If you're a Pharisee, you're thinking what? How does a kingdom come near you? That doesn't make any sense. A kingdom what? Is some a army attacking soon? 
It's near me? The king's near. (laughs) And again, it is a spiritual kingdom that you cannot see the borders, and there is a king that's there. He is near them. Luke 11, 20. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, he's talking to the Pharisees, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, look, if I do miracles, what's that imply? Then God's reign, God's kingdom is here. If I do miracles, now it's very interesting. If I do miracles, then that means the kingdom of God is here. You know what the Pharisees asked in Luke 17? What did they ask for? Signs. (laughs) He did them. But then he's going to say, but you're not going to get signs. What? He gave them signs. How are they not going to get signs? And then he says to them, except for the sign of Jonah. But then he says, you're not going to get a sign in Luke 17. Wait a second, which one is it? Is he is going to give them a sign or he's not going to give them a sign? We're going to talk about it as we go through the passage. You'll see it as we go along. Again, context, context, context. The greatest of these is context. Luke 18, 24, we'll see. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? And again, the kingdom's there, but in order to get into that kingdom, he says, it's not about how much you own. You can't buy your way into a kingdom. Okay? Especially God's kingdom. Very, very important. So in these passages, the kingdom of God is definitely being emphasized, right? Luke's talking about it over and over and over. But as we've seen in a kingdom that is not accepted by all, Some people are going to get in and some people aren't. And yet it's also a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom that includes the dregs and outcasts of society, of the the society of the day. It's only the least of the least. It's the worst of the worst. Those are the ones that get to go into the kingdom of God. So the natural question is, who gets to be a part of this kingdom? I want to know, am I in or out? And we should want to know, who are we in or out? Who's in and who's out? Who's in the kingdom and who's out? By the way, you have no K on your forehead. I can't look out into the congregation and say, oh, you're a kingdom citizen. Got it. I see it. Oh, there's another one. There's another K there on your head. You're part of the king. No. How can you be in the kingdom or out of the kingdom? Well, Jesus describes it in this passage and tells us who's in and who's out. These are the ones that aren't in the kingdom, and these are the ones that are in the kingdom. In our passage in Luke 17. So let's examine the two groups, who gets in and who gets out. First, there's the excluded, and second, there is the included. The excluded and the included. Let's talk about the excluded first. Who are the ones that we who get to see and enjoy the kingdom of God? It's the First, we'll start with the excluded, the ones that don't, in Luke 17, 20, and 21. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So let's see what role the Pharisees played in this kingdom of God. And and we're going to see that they aren't a part of the kingdom. 
They wanted to know when the kingdom was coming. This would be a natural thing for a Jew. They read their Old Testament Bible. They read the scriptures. They read them and they said, there's going to be a kingdom that's going to rule over everything. There's going to be a king. Because God said that there was going to be a king that would reign on David's throne. They're looking for this kingdom, right? God says there's going to be a kingdom. Where is it? When's it coming? Now, I find it very interesting. The Pharisees were continually questioning Jesus about this. They hated Jesus. They rejected Jesus. But why were they asking Jesus this question? It it, it reminds me very much of John chapter 3, Nicodemus. Nicodemus came at night, maybe to disguise himself, to talk to Jesus. And he makes this statement. We know that you are from God because of what you do. We know it, that you're from God. So in a sense, they know and believe that Jesus is from God. But, he says, in effect, what are you all about? And Jesus says, you must be born again. So in other words, he doesn't even have a born-again heart. He knows he's from God, but he's not repentant and accepting of the Messiah. There's a sense where he has it here, but it's not here. Right? It's very much like these Pharisees. The Pharisees knew Jesus had answers. He had the answers on the kingdom of God. He talked about it all the time. I want some information. But they weren't willing to submit to him. And so if they weren't willing to submit to him, and he had all the answers, but they weren't willing to submit to him, what did he do? He gave them cryptic answers. They didn't give them what they wanted. Why? Because they were not submissive to him. By the way, just listen to me closely. All too often, we, even who are believers, fall into this same trap. Let me explain to you what I mean. I want answers to fix my marriage. I want answers to fix my life. So we go to God and we say, help me, God. But then we're not willing to submit to him and do what we're supposed to do in order for the marriage to work. Do you hear me? And everybody said, Amen. You get it? I want answers. I want to know. But I'm not willing to submit to you to do what will make it work. This is what the Pharisees were like. And the Pharisees had a very man-centered view of the kingdom of God. They thought it was all about Wealth, prosperity, the Jews being restored to the top, that they would be able to dominate over their enemies. Obviously, they thought that Jesus had an idea of what the kingdom was about and when it would arrive, so they want to hear about it. It's interesting. They wanted to know when, but not who. Get this very clear. Mark this down. They wanted to know the when... But not the who. What do do I mean by that? They wanted to know when the blessings of the kingdom would come. But they didn't want to know who was the king. (laughs) That's crucial. See, this is too much like the world, isn't it? This is just like the world. I want the blessings of a great kingdom. But I don't want the who that runs it. 
I want to be free so I can be an anarchist. <laughs> I want to run myself. I want to be free. I love a nation that gives lots of freedom and liberty. But I don't want the who to rule over me. You get it? This is what the Pharisees wanted. Show me when the kingdom's coming because I want the blessings of being a Jew in the kingdom that's going to be the top dog king. I want to be in that kingdom. When's it coming? Because I know I'm going to have a spot. Because <laughs> after all, I'm a Pharisee. I'm one of those leaders. <laughs> and if I'm a leader of the Jews and the kingdom's coming, then that means I'm going to be top dog. I'm going to be ruling in that place. And Jesus says, in effect, you're focused on the wrong thing. The kingdom's in your midst. The king is here. Folks, now that doesn't, it's very important that we understand that it's the who, not the when. The focus was on the unknown time to come but they were more they weren't focused on who was the king who was coming this is a huge issue for much of the end times theorists out there by the way today they are totally obsessed when jesus is coming when's he coming when's he coming spend hours and hours trying to pinpoint days and times we too can fall into this same trap, by the way, if we focus too much on when instead of who is coming at the second coming. Now, that does not mean that we ignore passages in the Bible that talk about the imminency of Christ's return and say, this one's the one that I've heard from a few of you lately, and so I don't remember who you are, so I'm going to say it as a general statement. I'm a pan-millennialist. I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> yes, we study the Bible because all of the Bible is God's Word. Ladies and gentlemen, but why we study the return of the Lord is we, so we know the one who's coming better. What is the book of Revelation about? Well, we can't study that because it's too complicated. No, it's the revelation of our Lord Jesus in all his glory. I need to study that book. The more I know him, the more I understand the return, the more I know who he is, which is what it's about. I am staggered by the first chapter of Revelation because the guy that lays his head on the breast of Jesus the night that he was going to be betrayed is also the same one that falls at the feet of Jesus when he returns to show him and start at the beginning of Revelation. Should we study that book? Absolutely. For we get a better picture of Christ and who he is and what he will be like when he returns. A healthy fear of the Lord is found in an understanding of eschatology. Did you hear me? Wow. No, it all pan out in the end. No, listen. Eschatology teaches us a good and healthy fear 
of Christ, the returning judge. The first time he came, he came to what? Not to judge, but to die. So all of us want to stay in focus on that, don't we? We all want to focus on that because he died for us. Whatever we do, don't study the end times eschatology because then we will see Jesus as the judge who is coming and the wrath of the Lamb that will be poured out on the world. I think we need to study the whole counsel of God's Word, not just a little. So the Pharisees wanted to know when, but not who. So what was Jesus' answer to their question? Jesus said the kingdom was not coming with signs to be observed. <laughs> Look, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Wait a second. You just read this passage that said, if I do these miracles, it must be the finger of God, and so therefore the kingdom is here. Right? It's not coming with signs to be observed. His point is, and what they were looking for, were gigantic, heavenly, and they talk about this, heavenly signs where the moon will be changed to blood stars will fall from the sky if you want that read joel read the book of joel read it and find some amazing descriptions of the return of the messiah and the christ coming to set up his kingdom and how all of the heavens are going to be totally changed and jesus says you're not going to see those signs that's what he's talking about you don't want to see those kind of observations. Because the reality is they can't grasp it. They can't understand it. They're looking to the second coming in the scriptures, those second coming references in the scriptures, looking for those kind of miraculous events in the stars and the skies. And he says, it's not time for that yet. The kingdom of Christ has not taken over the whole of God's kingdom. The return has not happened yet. And it's not happening yet. But they can't comprehend that. But does he give us give them the answer? No, he doesn't. He just says, you're not going to observe it. And a matter of fact, he says what? Look, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. In other words, it's not about a location. You're not going to see this. Pharisees, you're so self-righteous and you won't submit to me. You're not going to see it. You're not going to see the location. You're not going to get it. Because it's going to happen a long time from now. But I'm not telling you because. I'm not giving you that information. He didn't give them that information. Who did he give the information to? The disciples in a little bit. The Pharisees, he just said, you're not going to see it. Sorry. Tough. That's what, in effect, he's going to say. That's what he's saying here. Tough. That's hard to hear, isn't it? Why is he so harsh on them? Why is he like this with these Pharisees? Answer, pride, self-righteousness, rejection of him. They were saying that all miracles that he did do were from Beelzebub. You're rejecting me, so guess what? I ain't giving you any revelation anymore, period. Here, I'll give you some revelation. Last verse. There it is. It's not there, it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is in your midst. And I think it's ironic that he uses this little word, behold. <laughs> Look! 
Now look, look, look at it before. Look back in the verse before. Look, here it is. Look, here it is. And then what's he say? Look! <laughs> what it is, is it, it's almost like you can't see. <laughs> look, I'm right here. The king is here. And what makes the kingdom so great is me. I'm right amongst you. Look, I'm right here. But folks, they had the scriptures and yet they could not see it. They were blind. The very king of the kingdom was there and talking to them. This is how much our sin blinds us to the truth, ladies and gentlemen. This is how wretched our souls are. Do you understand? This is who we are apart from the grace of God. You can come and hear Scripture over and over and over and it be right there in front of your face and miss it. This is how we are. What causes a person not to see the obvious? How is it that when you're evangelizing and you give them this glorious truth and they go, no way, I reject that. How? How does that work? What causes them to do that? The answer is their hard hearts, their pride, their self-righteousness. They saw themselves as better than the very God-man that they were talking to. They looked at the king and said, I am better than the king. Yeah, he might have some information on his kingdom, but I'm not going to submit to him. And that keeps him from understanding the truth. Notice also Jesus, the very king, was right in their midst. No amount of proof was going to convince these guys. No amount. Just like the guy that we saw, the rich man, says, hey, send back the... Send back Lazarus, risen from the dead, then they'll believe. No amount of proof was going to do it. They wanted timetables. They wanted calendars. And they had the king right in front of them. Do you understand how ironic that is? How crazy that is? God, just give me one of those nice Schofield charts. I just want a Schofield chart, please. When they had the king in their midst. It's crazy. I want the when, not the who. And the who's right in front of you. He's right in your midst. The irony here is, is he says, I am the kingdom of God. I am the embodiment of it. I'm in your midst. Now, there is some debate of whether you translate this in your midst or within you. Or in your midst. Right now I land that he's talking about in their midst. Because either you're going to change one word's meaning or you're going to change the other word's meaning. And long story short, and I'm not going to go into the details on this. This one word, in your midst, is only used twice in the Bible. And so you can debate whether it means, as the King James and New James says, within you. Or you can translate it as in your midst. One time, it's pretty sure it's talking about within you. It's in a cup. Within the cup. The other time is this time. I'm going to go with in your midst. 
And the reason why is because he says, is in your midst. He would say that the Pharisees, Jesus is within them. The kingdom is within you. And see, I don't see that he's talking about that. He's talking about himself being in their midst or in their circle, I guess you could say. Still fits. Now, y'all can grapple with that on your own. The reality is, is that Christ is there. All right? And the logic of this is the Pharisees are just typical of the world. Listen. Folks, we too are obsessed with external things that we miss the, the things that really matter. And that is a right relationship with Christ and with God. All that really matters in this world is knowing him and enjoying him. That's all that really matters. But they were so obsessed with the kingdom that they would be ruling and having the blessings of the kingdom, that they could not see that Jesus himself was in their midst. We are often tempted, ladies and gentlemen, I've said this, to be very judgmental of these Pharisees. But again, I want to warn you. Listen closely. You have more revelation than they did. Did you hear me? You have more in that book that you have on your lap, than they did. The New Testament was not written. They had a man. And all the men they knew were sinners. And a man shows up. And they have the Old Testament. That should have been enough, granted. It should have been obvious. But you have more. You know he died. That he rose from the dead. That he ascended and that he's coming back. You have the epistles that tell you how to apply those truths. You have all of the gospel revealed in the book of Romans. You have much, 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 much more revelation. Just be careful. I believe that our generation, our generation has... More revelation than any generation has ever had. I want you to think about just the internet is just staggering. There are times I've been studying for this biblical counseling thing, just going through and looking up things. There is some amazing resources on, online. You can read books and books and books about God that describe a right, accurate view of Scripture. You turn it on, you can watch sermons. You can listen to sermons, thousands of sermons, over and over and over of good stuff. You have at your resources so much revelation of God that we have what? No excuse. None. Yet we look at the Pharisees and say, man, how did they miss it? Jesus was right in their midst. How do we miss it? We all have plenty of Bibles. How many of you have, just by chance, more than three Bibles in your home? Please raise your hand. Oh, my. How many have more than five? Oh, anybody have more than ten? 
staggering. You got study notes. You've got revelation of God galore. No excuse, right? None. None. No excuse. They had Jesus in their midst, and they were seeing miracles, and they said, give us a sign. We have tons and tons of revelation of God. Tons of it. And we're saying, give me more. Give me more. I want to feel different. I want an emotional experience. We got a revelation of God. <sighs> what keeps a per- person from seeing the glory of the Savior? It's their hearts. What keeps us from, as we read this Bible and we see these great truths saying, I don't get it, I don't understand, I don't want it, I'd rather not submit to it. Our hearts! This is why Jesus came. Let me ask you a question. What would be your primary desire? What is your primary desire? I mean, if you could summarize in one clear five-word statement, what would be your primary desire? Hopefully it's this. I want to know you more. I want to know Christ more. That should be our prayer. That should be our desire. I'm telling you, if your desire, your greatest desire is here and now, in what you will have here and now on earth, you are in for a world of hurt, ladies and gentlemen. I'm telling you. I've been reminded of this in the last six months, and me and my wife were talking about this, how right now our church is absolutely being blessed with tons and tons of babies. We've got babies everywhere. They're coming, don't drink the water. There is babies. We are blessed, 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 blessed. Marriages, new marriages, it's just amazing. Marriages, babies, tons of people. It's just blessing, 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 blessing. But this can't be our focus. This cannot be our greatest desire. For if our greatest desire is to be married, single person, or to have children, married couple. You're going to be all about the when, not about the who. You get it? I'm about the who. And I, be, I need to be more about the who. And you do too. So who's included? The included of Jesus' day were the committed followers of the king. Verse 22, and he said, that is, Jesus said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of those of the days of the Son of Man, 
You will not see it. They will say to you, look there. Look here. Do not go away. And do not run after them. For just like the lightning when it flashes out of the part of the sky and shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. (laughs) First glance, you look at this and you say, no sign, but there will be a sign. And it's going to be an amazing sign. Flashes of lightning from one side of the sky to the other. No sign. There's going to be a sign. But Jesus directs his disciples to think properly. And put real simple, Jesus says, it's not about the when and where. It's about the who. He says the same thing to his disciples. They didn't get it, the Pharisees, but the disciples, I believe, did. Notice he gives this revelation. He says, his disciples. It was to his disciples. What a privilege it was to be one of Jesus' disciples, right? Jesus often spoke in cryptic language to the Pharisees, but man, he would just unfold and just lay it out for them. Very clear. His disciples got the clear glimpse of his kingdom. More and more, and yet their sin kept them from even seeing it at times. They argued about who's the greatest in the kingdom. (laughs) Who's going to be first in the kingdom? Ah, What is that? That's a disciple of Jesus arguing about who gets the first priority seat in the kingdom. Well, they were missing it. They were focused about the when and the where instead of the who. Is the king. (laughs) But Jesus was gracious. Jesus was kind. And he continued to reveal himself to them. This is the finest grace we who love Jesus receive. Listen to me. What makes salvation amazing now? What makes salvation amazing now is that we can know Him. We can know Him. I can enjoy Christ. I can know God. That is salvation, isn't it? That is eternal life. It is to know God and His Son whom He has sent. That is eternal life. This is grace, ladies and gentlemen. And his disciples get this grace. We who follow him get more and more and more awareness of him. And as we study our Bible, the Spirit illumines our hearts and reveals to us the glories of Christ. And we say, yes, give me more. Yes, give me more. I want another sermon. (laughs) Give me another one this morning. Give me your word. Give me another book that talks about you. For we want to know him. And he reveals himself to us. This is how gracious our Savior is. Notice also his disciples would long for his return. Now this is very interesting. It says, Jesus says, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the sons of man, man, and you will not see him or see it. The Son of Man, by the way, is a phrase talking about Jesus. 
talking about himself, and they will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Now, it could be one of two things. One, looking back to them looking back and saying, man, I wish I had that moment again where I was hanging out with you, Jesus. It was amazing. Or it could be a reference to the future, longing to see him in the future. I lean that it's a longing for the future. And the reason why is because Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and pressing on to what we know in the future. We know who it is that revealed that to us. But I want to see him in his full glory, don't you? And that's what believers really want. And that's what we long for, isn't it, ladies and gentlemen? All of us who are kingdom citizens, what do we want to see? Christ. I want to see the glory of Christ exposed, don't you? I can't wait till the day that all those people who have mocked my Savior see His glory. I can't wait for that day. I can't wait to be rid of this body of death I carry around that for some unknown reason knows the glory of God, but yet it still has a tendency to suppress it and not seek it as much as it should. Anybody in here read your Bible as much as you should last week? None of us. You've got the revelation of God's glory in your hands. And yet I'm fairly sure all of us in the room found something to do other than to study it a couple of times. Even in our spare times. I'm ready to see the Son of Man. For I know when I see the Son of Man, I will be transformed and I will know Him as He is known and He will know me and I will enjoy Him. Jesus says the ones that are a part of the kingdom will have this longing constantly. This is what we long for, isn't it? Have you ever had these thoughts, man, I'm okay with Jesus coming back after I have a baby, after I get married, after I get established in my career. You need to ask yourself the question, why are you prioritizing those things over Jesus? I want to know Jesus. I want him to come back, and I want to come back now. I'd like for him to come back before this sermon's over. Preferably, he would do a lot better revealing himself than me. Come on. (laughs) Right now. We long for him, don't we? Third is, disciples must not fall for the false teachers. He warns them. He says, he says, they will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. Wait a second. Who's the they? I love it when the Bible does this. They throw out those pronouns that have no antecedents. You're, you're looking for, where's the, where's the antecedent to that they? Usually what you do when you're studying your Bible, you find a pronoun and you go back and you find the one that it was referring to before, right? That's how we do it normally in English. But it's assumed. 
It's the false teachers. It's the false prophets. It's the ones that are going to tell you to go out to look at a place, a location. But he says, don't go away and don't run after them. So by what they do to get your focus off of me, you know they're not right. Do you understand? Anybody that gets your attention off of Christ, don't go after them. Anybody that exalts anything other than Christ, don't go there. Don't listen to them. Don't run after them. What a great shepherd. Isn't he an amazing shepherd? Jesus is the shepherd that says what? Listen, long for me. The kingdom, you're part of it. Just long for me. And don't go after those false prophets. Keep your eyes on me. Fix your attention on me. That's all that matters. By the way, Jesus sure would not be accepted back in many of the seeker-sensitive churches in our day. You're going to long to see my return, but you won't see it. <laughs> People who give you hope are really going to bear false hope. The fact is, my return is in the future, but you probably won't see it. That's what he's saying to them. Now, now think about this for a second. He's, he's giving them hard news to hear, isn't he? What's he saying? He's saying, look. He's saying, in effect, you're going to die without seeing me again. I'm going away. Boy, that would be a church growth movement, wouldn't it? Your shepherd. Leaving. Not going to see him anymore. Not until the future. Man. And people are going to try to deceive you, but don't go after them. They're going to give you false hope, but don't go after them. How is this gracious? I asked my question. How is this gracious? Why didn't Jesus talk about heaven here? <laughs> you know, right? You're looking at this, you're thinking... Okay, where's heaven, you know? Kind of throw it in there, you know? Get heaven in there. Now he says, For just like the lightning when it flashes out of the one part of the sky and shines to the other part, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But it implies what? It's not your day. You're going to die. You're not going to see it. because. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Hey, How is this gracious? Well, it's gracious because he reveals what's going to happen to them ahead of time. Now, think about this for a second. Think about this. He tells them what's going to happen before it happens. And when it happens, like he said it was going to happen, what are they going to say? Our Lord is in control. Our God is sovereign. He said he was going to be rejected. He said this generation was going to reject him. He said it wasn't going to be now. What do we need to do? Trust him. This is glorious news. This is just amazing. He is being so kind and compassionate. People are going to say, look here, go there. But don't listen. 
He's being kind. He's showing his sovereignty over the world and his kingdom. He's revealing his sovereignty as the king, the sovereign king. What does this do for us believers? It makes heaven sweeter for us too, doesn't it? If if the earth was all that there was, if this was all there was, I don't know about you, this would be a miserable place to live. When I talk to unbelievers, I think I'm so saddened by them. This is the best they have. This is it. What they have here, this is the best they have to hope for. That's sad. But we, this is nothing. This does not compare to the glories to be found in heaven when the sons of God, the children of God are revealed as being his children, Romans 8. And we know our king. Heaven's going to be sweet. It's going to be even sweeter than the realities of the difficulties that we have here. At the same time, you know, this is the worst the believer will ever experience is here. Right here. This is the worst we will ever experience. And it's it's still pretty good. You know why it's good? Because we know Jesus. We know he's in control. I mean, look, I, I, I mean, this is nice, right? He is blessing us, right? But this is the worst we will ever experience. It causes us to constantly depend on him, too, when Jesus gives this kind of information. We say the reality is is that you could die. You probably will die, and you will not see me. What will that do? That will cause us to depend on him more. For them, it caused them to depend on him more. By the way, what's the best place for you to be, believer? Completely dependent upon Christ. That's what you need. That's where you need to be. All the time. And if you know things are going to be tough. By the way, they are going to be. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be. That's a promise that nobody quotes. Persecuted. Do you understand what I mean by that? Oh, but wait a second. That ain't a promise in the Bible that the secret sensitive church gives me. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What does that make you do? I need you. And that's the best place to be. Last couple of weeks I've had a hip pain. I'm telling you, there are times I can't get up out of the seat. Everything I can, it just hurts so bad. I'm like, you cry, cringe, and there's tears of it going to my eyes. I just try to get out of a seat. And I've turned it into my worship time. 
It's my worship time. Yes! <laughs> I can do it. I love you. You're better than this. Heaven's going to be sweet. I'm ready for this body of death to go away. I need you. I need you, God. I need you. You're better than this world. We press on knowing he pressed on. His disciples who know him as the suffering servant first. Notice verse 25 and we'll close there. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Oh, folks, this is the glory, isn't it? This is what causes us to continue on. This is our greatest joy. The one who suffered many things and was rejected by this generation. See, we know the whole truth of what that means, right? We know that because he suffered many things, we were declared Righteous by His blood. An atonement was made. A sacrifice was paid. Given. We are redeemed. We're free from the power and penalty of sin because of our Savior. Oh, I'm so thankful, aren't you? How many of us exalt God Because his son died. Yes. Because he died in our place. Oh, I am so glad that he did not come and set up the second kingdom first. Let me tell you why. Because he'd be the only one in it. Think about that. If he came in his first coming as the judge, no one would live. Only the holy angels that did not fall. But Jesus came to suffer many things and be rejected by this generation so that we would have a way to avoid the wrath of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Your grace is good. Your kindness is obvious. Oh God, help us to recognize the revelation of you, to know you more, and to respond in worship. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.